This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Sam Knight is one of the New Yorker's finest writers, and now the author of a book telling a bizarre story from 1960s Britain that is on the cusp of science and science fiction. It's called The Premonitions Bureau, and he joined David Malone to tell us more. Sam is also joining us live on stage in a couple of weeks to interview Michael Lewis, the author of The Big Short and Liar's Poker, about his amazing life and career. If you'd like to come, use the discount code HOWTOPOD at the checkout page, that's HOWTOPOD, all in caps, for 20% off. And without further ado, here are Sam and David. How did you get onto the Premonitions Bureau? Well, tell us what it is and how the heck you discovered it. Okay, yeah, okay. So the so, so Premonitions Bureau kind of, in essence, was an experiment. It was a small-scale experiment, mainly between two men, a psychiatrist named John Barker and a journalist, Peter Fairley, who was the, the science editor of the Evening Standard. And the third kind of really important person was a woman called Jennifer Preston, who was Fairley's assistant at the Evening Standard. And she collected premonitions from the British public. And so the experiment ran for a relatively short period. It was kind of really active for about 18 months. And it ran sort of housed within the Evening Standard. And the idea was to ask the British public for their dreams and visions and kind of presentiments of the future. And then to kind of log those against events as they occurred and to see how many became true came to pass yeah so that was the experiment kind of in and of itself and I first stumbled across the words you know the premonitions bureau a little while ago that was kind of you know six or seven years ago and it was literally a mention in one of those kind of 20th century guides to the paranormal world of strange wonders kind of books and it was just this fleeting reference to to this experiment which kind of just sounded like a a bit of I don't know, a bit of hokum, a bit of kind of, you know, a, a fortune teller on the pier kind of thing, a sort of flimsy, a flimsy thing. Um, but nonetheless, the name and the kind of the concept was so sort of attractive that I, you know, became like intent on finding everything I could about it. And I think the kind of the key that sort of that sort of unlocked it for me was the figure of Barker. You know, he, he wasn't 
a crank. I mean, he had some extreme uh, and unusual ideas, but he was a serious practicing psychiatrist. He was helping run a large mental hospital. You know, he had hundreds of patients. He was a, he was a proper progressive psychiatrist at a time of kind of great change in the field. So I was like, hold on, this isn't, there might be something here. And he, and he is a, an interesting cat because, as you say, he was coming into the psychiatry at a time when people were still dropped off and left to rot in those great big Victorian asylums. And, and he was one of the people saying, we can do better than this. So he's a very, as you say, a very progressive figure. And yet has this other side to him, which seems, seem, I, don't, I was going to say seems looking back as if we're so much better than that now. But the, he wasn't alone. I mean, in the book, you mentioned J.B. Priestley and yeah. the, the Evening Standard and uh, Hugh Weldon, the BBC. They all took an interest, didn't they? So it yeah. wasn't, was it countercultural? What was it? So I think, you know, we're talking about a sort of strain of mid 20th century British intellectual culture in which ideas now seem very far apart were able to kind of rub rub alongside each other in respectable people's minds, if you see what I mean. And, and Barker's, you know, Barker is a real, he's got a foot in both worlds, as as many people, you know, around at that time did. Is there a connection? I mean, it, it's, it doesn't figure in the book, but you say it's very English, and it, it, the story is wonderfully English, well, British. But there was also the, all that CIA stuff about the men who watched goats and, I mean... It, it wasn't just in the UK, was it? There was some something going on that people thought the mind might be capable of much more than we thought. Yeah, yeah, certainly. So there was remote viewing and kind of other CIA kind of sponsored experiments in America. And then there's also less well-known but parallel experiments taking place in the Soviet Union along similar lines. There's clearly kind of something in the air. I mean, I, th- I think it's kind of impossible to sort of make a solid theory on this, but we're talking about a time of dramatic social and technological change. And I think, you know, this clearly something similar takes place in the kind of 1890s through to the first world war with the founding of the society for psychical research and telepathy and mediums. And that's, you know, you know, a really nice thing that kind of stayed with me, while I was doing my research is that, you know, telepathy comes from the same roots as the telegram and the telephone, you know, mm. the 19th century was this time of technology radically changing people's relationships with each other and what was, what was possible. And therefore, you know, to be on the frontier of finding the next thing about the human mind didn't seem as far fetched as it feels now. And, and in the sixties, it's arguable. You've got, you've got something similar taking place, you know, Peter Fairley, this the showman of the experiment if you like you know presented the moon landings on itv mm. literally going between rifling through the the predictions sent in by the british public to going to watch the launch of the you know jupiter rockets in in florida to take to take man to the moon so he he's these things existed as i say just right alongside each other in a way that is is kind of you know it's kind of hard to imagine now yes and but i mean the you say, what's it, page 143, our propensity to see objects which are not there, perceptual hunger, that's a lovely phrase, of perceptual hunger, increases as we feel less and less in control of what is happening to us. And that's really a lot of what's going on, isn't it? 
and that that hasn't gone away. No, I no, I agree. And that that phrase and that part of the book that you're referring to is a really nice paper in 1977, where some Soviet psychologists studied the reactions of parachutists, uh, and what they did is they they presented them with random dots or dots with numbers hidden in them, and they found that people were best. They spotted most acutely where the numbers were when in the kind of early stages of the flight. So when your adrenaline's up, your heart's going, plenty of oxygen flooding around the body, you, you see things very clearly and people were most likely to see shapes that weren't there just as they were about to jump out of the plane. So just a moment where stress carries you into, 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 into seeing patterns and seeing meaning, which isn't necessarily there, which I think kind of most people can sort of intuitively relate to. Hmm. But also, as you say, both of your central characters, they've got one foot in what we would call respectable science and then yeah. one foot in this other. But you, you, you say in your book, there is a, a link between looking for hidden patterns and making hypotheses. So making, you, in both cases, you're trying to make predictions about the future. Yeah. So it's not so strange that, that, that they, because they are doing it just in different ways in the two parts of their lives. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that makes me think of a couple of things. And the first, uh, which is, you know, a bit mischievous maybe, but is about we, we hold up science, at least I do, you know, hold up scientists and, 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 and doctors and other kind of, you know, overtly rational people as, as following, you know, the scientific method or being kind of highly skeptical or sort of ultra rational when faced with the world but of course they're just the same as us they want to see see something that no one's ever seen before they want to be the one to proclaim some new some new impossible theory do you see what i mean they're just as prone to sort of delusions and patterns that aren't maybe there uh, as the rest of us and barker in particular for me is a intensely kind of human and, and relatable person for that reason but also you know i, I think you know things like premonitions as soon as you sort of say the word that that belongs in a certain category of of the culture whereas you know things like intuition or people on wall street or in the city of london who somehow have a feeling something's up and you know move before the you know the rest of the market from basing some hunch on scrappy evidence or possibilities are kind of hailed as seers and you know important people to be listened to do you know what i mean there's there's, 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 there's a way in which these things are kind of are judged according to the context in which they take place. Yes, I mean, it, you're right. There, there's, there's a sort of continuum of words which they go from entirely acceptable through to things where you're going, oh, you say a hunch, that's fair, fair enough. Yeah. An intuition, uh, you know, and then you've got people who have um, inspiration, that's okay. Maybe revelation would start to ring a few bells. <laughs> <laughs> and, there's a point, and there's a point where it becomes, you know, act, you know yeah. actively harmful and, you know, and, you know, bad for people, yeah. Tell us about some of the, I mean, I just have to say the way you wrote the book, I just want to ask, you, you, you write it in what I think is a very, very clever way in that you, you play around with the timeline. So you introduce strange notions and strange people, and then it takes a while to work back to why they're there and why, how they're so strange. And it has a, it's a very good way of writing the book because you get drawn into this, these people's worlds. I mean, they're like Miss Middleton. What a wonderful character. I mean, she's, she's, she's right out of Jane Austen. 
Tell us about Miss Middleton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will too, yeah. That's a fun character. No, and, I, and, I, and the book starts with her, and I, and I and the, you know, there's a reason why I wanted the book to to, to start with her. So, so the Premonitions Bureau ran for about, as I say, kind of in active form for about kind of 18 months. And over the, the course of that time, there were two two stars, if you like. And one of those was, was Miss Middleton. She was called Kathleen Middleton. She was a music teacher based in Edmonton in North London. Uh, she was born in Boston in 1914. Her parents were English, but lost everything in the Great Depression and came back to suburbia in the 1930s. And Miss Middleton had been a child performer. She went to like a distinguished music school in Boston. She was sort of a trained, you know, child performer. She, and, 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 and she she lived out her days as, as a well-known and... I'm going to hesitate to say beloved, but sort of respected neighbourhood figure in Edmonton, running this music school out of her, out of the house where she lived with her parents for, for 30 or 40 years. But she, and she maintained her American accent and a certain, a certain glamour, a certain kind of poise. She sort of carried herself like, like someone who was someone. Uh, and she, she sort of carried this air of, of mystique and possibility and the reason why I was able to write about her is because one of her pupils, a woman called Miss Middleton, uh, not Miss Middleton, Christine Williams, uh, who started taking classes with her as a child, befriended her and then became her kind of friend and carer in her old age. And when she died, she kind of lovingly went through all of her possessions and letters and diaries. And so when I managed to track her down, you know, there was Miss Middleton sort of waiting for her story to be to be told, and I, I, it was just really important to me to try and write about her and to write about everyone in the book as fully rounded people. There's a, there's, a, there's a way to reduce someone like Miss Middleton to, you know, a cat lady. You know, she had a lot of cats, but she was also a person with a kind of full emotional life. Do you know what I mean? And 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 I wanted to sort of. It was important to me that people start the book taking. It's not so much taking people seriously, but 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 trying to meet them where they are, I suppose. Hmm. And and that works with Miss Middleton, and, to, and but it's also the way that you've got this character who's sort of English whimsy, and then you pair it up with Abba Fan, which is anything but whimsical. Yeah, and and so there's a there's a wonderful contrast through the book between light and dark, the sort of the the idiosyncratic English sort of strangeness and then something which is very very serious and and you pair this up the whole way through you know they they, they weren't the, the premonitions wasn't about you know who's going to win crafts yeah they were all concerned with terrible disasters and could they be avoided so they they weren't frivolous people they yeah. might seem frivolous in one way but their interests were anything but frivolous they were they were laudable well, interests well i think i think when i was researching the subject and you know and writing the book there's sort of yeah there, there, there would be times where like is this all zany do you know what I mean is this is this um and or 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 frivolous or kind of even you know even in bad taste you know as you you know say there's a number of you know very serious kind of disasters that kind of that I, that, that I write about you know obviously Abavan and and then also a terrible fire that takes place uh, in in Shelton Hospital where Barker works. But I would when I would have these sort of moments of doubt, then there would generally be some moment where the, the story would 
I hope, offer a glimpse of something which is maybe more universal or, or, or starts coming into questions of our own mortality or the, the way that you and I make decisions about our lives and interpret chance happenings and whether you choose to act on them or, or don't choose to act on them. And so in my own researching of the subject, I'd be like, why, why, you know, why, am I, why am I chasing, why am I reading through electoral rolls in the British Library, like house by house in Charlton, trying to find the relatives of Jennifer Preston, this assistant who collected all the things. And then, and then there would normally be some moment where I would feel anyway that this, oh, this does connect to some, some broader questions. Hmm. And as you say that, that they, they were asking themselves deep questions. And I just wondered, I mean, I know you've said that you're not someone who believes in premonitions and you, I don't think you've had any premonitions yourself, have you? Not that I'm willing to talk about. <laughs> Fair enough. No, you're right. Okay. <laughs> um, but yet, you cleverly through the book will talk about premonitions that people had mm. and that uh, they're quite close in time to something that did happen. Did you ever find yourself going, oh, God, well, maybe? Because, I mean, like you, I don't believe in premonitions, but there was a whole section of the book where rapid fire that you know miss middleton thought this or somebody thought yeah. that, and then two days later this yeah. or the very next morning and I, I found myself going oh hang on a second and then i'd say no, no, no wait, wait, what am i thinking but <laughs> is there something in human nature that just would wants to or, or we're vulnerable to the thought or something yeah i, I yes yes I, yes i think is the is 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 the short answer i mean a few a few things that kind of leap to mind hearing you talk there i mean i think the it's interesting. You, you you work you work. You know, I'm a magazine writer. You know, you, you work on different subjects. And when I was writing the initial version of this story for the New Yorker, and then when I was writing the book, people say, "Oh, you know, what are you working on?" And you, you say what you're working on. And and I normally would wouldn't really be able to describe what this was about before someone started telling me about one of their own experiences or or something that took place within their family and has become a kind of an important part of their own experience or their family's experience. And I think the truth is, is that many people live with coincidences or, or, or seeming glimpses of the future that are, that are inexplicable and they don't really know what to do mm. with that. And it sort of exists as a kind of a tough little knot in your life that you can't really unpack or find or find a reason for. And I think a lot of people live with those inexplicable happenings and and sort of don't don't particularly know how to respond to them i mean i think i think one thing that's really guided my sort of thinking about this and there's a section in the book about about the western isles of scotland i was going to ask you about that yeah where yeah where, where where second sight and you know seeing people at a distance or seeing things before they happened or seeing impossible sites was fairly commonplace or at least a kind of socially accepted happening through until the kind of the 18th century more or less and and there's this wonderful bit of writing about it by a man called Martin Martin in the late years of the 17th century and one of the, the fascinating things that he describes is that when people leave the western isles the gift the faculty whatever it is goes away 
And then when they return to the Western Isles, it returns. And I think there's something really important about that is that this is a, it's a, it's a social phenomenon. Mm. There's, there's, there's something about the idea of you being able to see something that's going to happen to someone else is for me fundamentally a kind of, it's an, it's an idea of a shared unconscious or a shared subconscious. And this is where you, you drift into Jung and, and another kind of mid-century kind of strong ideas about the workings of the human mind. And I, and I, when I was writing the story, I, did, I, I thought often about that study of the Western Isles and I came to think of the premonitions a bit like the premonitions bureau, a bit like a tiny island hmm. a group of people, you know, had a shared belief that they, that this, that this was possible and this was happening. And that, and that must have been tremendously exciting for them, but it was also unsettling and 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 disrupting and you know and and and, and, and problematic and, and, and painful. Yes, but I mean, you, again, there's a nice quote. You say, "We see the world as our community sees it. We are drawn into each other's yeah. scheme of things." Yeah, and that, 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 that you know, that there is some some truth to that. And and then you you sort of take that notion and you update it with with more modern vocabulary. You talk about the nocebo, yeah, the negative placebo. Tell us about that because that's it was almost sort of taking that Western Isles from 1703 and saying, okay, let's look at a more modern version. Yeah, so, 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 so the nocebo effect is, as it sounds, it's the opposite of the placebo effect. Uh, it's most commonly observed during drug trials. So I give you a pill during a drug trial and I say, it probably won't, it probably won't happen to you, but some people, when they take this pill, they get, they, get a, they get a bit of, they get an itchy, they get an itchy leg or something like that. And when you warn people about the possible side effect, not surprisingly, a much higher proportion of people <laughs> then develop an itchy leg during the, during the drug trial. And it often, as I say, occurs in that kind of relatively benign form. And Barker was interested in the nocebo effect and he was interested in it at the very extreme end which is what happens if you tell someone they're going to die does that make it more likely uh, to happen is there a sort of physiological component to negative expectations in our brain does that unlock other kind of physical responses to that and there was a uh, sort of this was named, you know, probably, you know, potentially ill-advisedly sort of, no, this was, this, this was known as voodoo death. This was, it was named in 1944 by Walter Cannon, uh, a doctor at Harvard Medical School. And, and it's something that I, you know, spoke to neurologists at, at Harvard now, you know, th- this, this happens, you know, extreme states of fear, release hormones called catecholamines. They can overwhelm various mm-hmm. sort of bodily organs. It's not... It's not as far fetched as it. It's not as far fetched as it as it as it seems. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, the the whole notion of that people have sort of a psychosomatic illness, something which they bring on themselves, and it's shared like the Havana syndrome, where all these Americans were saying, "My God, we're being targeted by acoustic um, weapons," yeah. and and it was medically and physiologically and from the point of view of physics impossible. Yeah. The things they were, but and yet, lots of eminent people were going, yeah, yeah, that must be right. <laughs> but it's, but it's, again, it's shared in the skin. It's in, you know the other, you know, I, I write about you know what's called resignation in resignation syndrome in in Sweden, and that's mm. one of the very nice phrases used to describe this. You know, it's an, an an idiom of distress. It becomes a shared language of of uh, you know of suffering, which is which is real. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So in some sense, you're sort of sketching out the, the, the idea of premonitions, as, as a, to use that phrase, as sort of a shared idiom, a shared vocabulary of wanting to understand the world or control it. Yeah. And do you think there was something about the, the 60s and 70s? I mean, we, it was a time of a lot of change where old ways of saying, oh, this is where the way the world works were being replaced. Yeah, I, 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 I wasn't there, so I can't speak for it, but it, you know, it, it certainly feels that. It certainly feels that way. And I, you know, I have to say, one of the I don't write about it a huge amount in the book, but one of the sort of most important things that I read about and spoke to uh, people who understand it much, much better than I do, and I'll probably kind of butcher it now. But is this is this idea of the of the predictive brain, which is sort of something that is sort of been increasingly important in, in neuroscience since the 1990s, which is that we don't receive experience passively, as it were, as it happens to us. Mm-hmm. Our brains are forming our responses and predicting our responses constantly. And in fact, and they write very beautifully about this kind of this cascade of, of predictions and memories going down to meet experience kind of as it happened. And I, again, I think, you know, premonitions and intuitions and feelings about the future just exist, you know, within, within touching of, you know, essential human ways of, 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 of processing experience. Yes. Cause in some ways, I, I forget what you say, but you, know, you, you say in some ways that the premonitions are, are, are a tantalizing version of something which definitely does exist, you know, the yeah. ability to, to, to make sensible predictions. Um, and so it, the structure of a premonition seems like something very real that has had lots of success in a slightly different guise, you know, just thinking, well, if I don't watch myself when I'm walking downstairs, I'll trip over. And so you make a prediction that you should watch what you're doing and it works. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And, you know, and there is, seems like there is an almost universal kind of need or place for profits in a culture. That's not, you know, that's not particular to sort of any, any cultural tradition, you know, the idea that there, there should be some people who can, who can see what's going to happen next. Yeah. Can you see it? Do you think it's really um, something of the past? Because like you say, it was there. Yeah. Sort of. Well, certainly was there before World War One, and then you you talk about how there was a whole generation of bereaved parents who were vulnerable, and yeah. um, uh, I mean those those things which make people want want to believe in premonitions or, or, or and those extra dimensions that they haven't gone away. So it seems unlikely that we've suddenly become, you know, we finally become the rational creatures. That we always, you know, like to pretend we are. I can't really see that suddenly we have. Well, I'm just kind of riffing here, but you know, you, 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 it seems that you see these these waves, these moments where where this kind of thinking 
uh, recurs and, you know, who knows what's going to, who knows sort of what is the future of the future of these ideas. But something that I really like about Barker is that, you know, his ultimate vision for the Premonitions Bureau was, you know, mass premonitions, you know, take it out of uh, the evening standard and make it a kind of a national, he called it a, you know, a central clearinghouse for the nation's dreams and feelings. And you'd be able to just call in from a telephone box or send your letter into some kind of freestanding bureau. And ultimately you'd get these things in sufficient scale that you could feed them into a computer. And then a computer would look for peaks and patterns in the information and then be able to kind of generate, you know, an early warning based on this kind of confluence in the nation's um, mm. in the nation's subconscious. And it's obviously very esoteric and strange and impossible. And yet, to my mind, it also does have a quite powerful resemblance to, you know, social networks and people's hunger to share their feelings. You know, there's a there's a French thinker called Teilhard de Chardin, who's an amazing paleontologist and kind of French mm. religious thinker. Uh, and he he talked about human evolution heading towards some kind of global consciousness. And it's fascinating to me that we have made a global consciousness in the form of the internet. You know, if something happens in Japan in the next, you know, half an hour, you, you and I will know about it when we kind of when we log off this call, we have found a way to share human feeling almost instantaneously on a huge scale among people. Uh, and so there's, there's an aspect of, you know, when I was researching the, the story, it kind of just kept veering, veering into, you know, the, the insane and the impossible and then kind of back in, back into like, oh, wait, that, you know, that, that resembles something. You know, we know there's people feeding all sorts of, you know, sentiment analysis into Facebook and Twitter trying to figure out the mood of the mood of people and the mood of populations do you know what I mean it's, it's, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, these, no, exactly these, these, these things kind of um, I don't know there are well well uh, but, but you can you can see how that you could say look people's dreams and their, their professed premonitions you don't have to say I'm sure they're right for them to nevertheless have to have a lot of information in them. I mean, if the whole if a whole <laughs> nation started dreaming these sort of dire dreams of death, destruction, and doom, yeah. it wouldn't have to be Einstein to think there's obviously something going on in that culture <laughs> that people yeah. are somehow not happy about. Uh, it, it just reminded me there was um, there's a there's a wonderful novel by a man called uh, Kadare. I think he's Albanian, called The Palace of Dreams. Um, oh, yeah. And it's 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 about a whole society and a whole um, bureaucracy that collects dreams yeah. for precisely this reason. They figure we must we must know what people are dreaming because every now and then an important one comes up. It's a, it's a fantastic novel, and it, it, you know your book reminded me of it. I'll get I'll get on it. I, yeah, but you know you're with with talking about premonitions, and you say it's it's they're on one end of a spectrum, but like you say, what's so different between someone saying, I just feel if we make a big push, if we, if we, if we um, make a big push on this today, the revolution will start, you know, like in, in, um, uh, in Tahrir Square. No, yeah. Someone had the thought, now's the moment we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, it's not exactly a premonition, but it's not, it's not yeah. that far away, is it? Yeah, I mean, I kind of, I think I, I can, um, 
I think I can help there because, um, so Peter Fairley, the, the, the journalist um, involved in the involved in the Bureau, he gave a really, um, he died in the late 90s, but he gave a, a really nice interview to the BBC in the late 70s, just talking about his, his, his career and which was this, this career of, 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 you know, he coined the phrase, you know, the brain drain, you know, he wrote about hovercraft, you know, really like right there alongside sort of British industrial and kind of scientific progress in the kind of 50s, 60s, 70s, while, you know, maintaining a kind of healthy uh, belief in, you know, extraterrestrial life and, you know, premonitions and things like that. Um, and his definition of premonition, which I think, which I think is useful, and I kind of stuck to it for the book, is the feeling that you that you know, you know something is going to happen, mm-hmm. and it feels like it already has, and then and it's not a nice feeling because you don't know what to do with that information, and it suddenly just weighs on you. You've been given insight, and you know instinctively that most people won't listen to you or take you seriously, but nonetheless you know and I, and, I, and I think that is the sort of you know to help my help myself and help my thinking because as you just as you describe it there is the spectrum and it can be hard to draw the line somewhere I sort of use that as my sort of my kind of guiding guiding sort of rule when I was when I was thinking about these things yes I mean but what's I mean put that you're right that's a really good definition because I could imagine uh, no look some engineer who's looked at a Boeing plane and done the numbers, and in the middle of the night, his brain just says, if people fly this plane, it will crash. I know. I know it's not It's not good. And, and maybe at that moment, th- that engineer wouldn't be able to write it all out in the numbers, and it, but his mind has figured out something. He just yeah. knows. Yeah. And, and that's that's not ESP. That's it's, it's, Isn't it because your mind delivers answers to you and you yourself can't go back and interrogate your own mind of how you came to this. We have thoughts. We don't, we yeah. can't figure out how they came to us. They just come to us. Yeah. I mean, if I ask you what's, you know, the square root of 25, you'll give me the answer, but you can't, you don't know what the process was. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> Listen, um, if you don't mind, I know it's earlier than normal, but there's some, <laughs> someone's written in a question, which is yeah. pertinent to what we're saying. It's by someone called Morgane. I am a futurologist who speaks to large multinationals, and I've been asked in the past if my forecast, bracket, often predictions, happen because people create that future reality in the collective subconscious because of what I've said, which is quite interesting. In other words, someone talks about the future, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy if enough people say, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is sort of, in a way, the opposite of the the paradox that Barker and Fairley struggled with, which was, could they ever really prevent these things mm. from happening? Because how can you see something which has been prevented? There would be no vision to precede it. So yeah, there are there are there are these kind of these paradoxes that sort of. I don't want to say drive people mad, but make, you know, are, are difficult are difficult to wrestle with in in, in, mm. in these questions of prophecies and how well, self propelled they are. Yeah, yeah. This person then goes on. There's the second half, which is interesting. Um, in 2018, I was filmed speaking about 2020, 
and showed pictures of people in masks, hazmat suits, and showed an image of a virus. I did not know about COVID, but in my work, I show the future in a series of images and talk around them in the theme. My success rate is accurate, but I do not have premonitions. <laughs> now, is what do you say to that? Well, I'd say this this person has the correct job title of futurologist, yeah, mm. rather than seer, yeah. Yes, because, yeah, it's a, it's a good, it's, I mean, a futurologist, the difference, I suppose, is that you think, well, a futurologist knows about modern technology and, and, and knows about the kind of gain of function that's been going on in labs. And, and so, you know, they're, they're extrapolating to the future. Okay. That's different from someone who is a dance teacher in Edmonton. Yeah. And says, there's going to be a fire in a hospital next week and lots of people are going to die and it's going to be like this. Yeah. Because one seems to be an extrapolation of expertise and the other just seems to go out of nowhere. Yeah, to, uh, you know, compare it to a bit like the example you gave a moment ago, you know, of knowing the answer in a, a spelling test or just seeing, you know, an electric, you know, seeing letters just in neon in her mind. It would just mm. be there. But I mean, yes, okay. I mean, well, the mind is a weird thing. I mean, I, I, I made a film about people who hear voices and they were wonderfully interesting people because, you know, generally if people hear voices, people say they're mad. And I put this to them and one of them it was very charming and slightly exasperated. And he said, look, if you're mad, you'll have mad voices. If you're sane, you'll have sane voices. Yeah. And the sane voices told them, they said, things they didn't know. The voices yeah. were cleverer sometimes than they were. <laughs> no, and we, and I, one of the people that I interviewed for the book is a very brilliant psychiatrist uh, at uh, Cornell University who works on the psychiatry of, of delusions. And, and he was really interesting to talk to, he says, because I'm an academic psychiatrist rather than a, you know, a, a practicing kind of doctor psychiatrist, people will tell me much stranger stuff because I'm not going to try and treat them or make them better. I just want to hear. And, but he made the observation that we're amazingly able to have extreme delusions or ideas about the world and just have them fit into an otherwise normal life. Do you know what I mean? You can, you can, you can believe that the CIA are trying to poison you and, agree to meet someone in a cafe. Do you know what I mean? That's not, people will, 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 will have these, have these things right, right along, you know, so you can have mad voices or, or sane voices. And these sort of points of distinction are really obvious to the person who maintains them. Yeah. If you had a premonition, if you, well, let's not use the word premonition. If you woke up one day and you just knew something. Yeah. Yeah. What would you do with it? I mean, would you just say, I can't know that because it, 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 it is at odds with my broader worldview of rationality. Or would you say, I know this? Oh. Like if, 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 I don't know, you, you, well, that, I mean, that's, you had a premonition that your best friend, if they, if they got on the plane they were going to get on, was going to die. Would you just say nothing? Well, I think this is, this is kind of what, you know, this is kind of what, what the book is about. You know, there's, there's this nice, bit of writing by Arthur Kerstler, the, you know, the writer uh, of Darkness at Noon, who then became very, very occupied by the question of, of coincidence and chance. 
and moved to the UK after the war and did a bunch of kind of experiments along along these lines, exactly the same time as Barker. And and he described this as a, you know, it's 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 a mute power tugging at your sleeve, you know, these 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 moments happening. And then and it, and it's up to you to decide what you're going to do about it. Do you just kind of brush it off and kind of carry on with your life regardless? Or do you see that as an opportunity to change or to do something? And I think we're making these judgments constantly. You know, we leave the house, you know, we see two magpies, we, you know, we tread in some dog shit on the way to the tube. Do you know what I mean? Do we, are we going to have a bad day or are we going to manage to compartmentalise that and kind of, we're, we're constantly evaluating signals and patterns and and choosing to choosing to follow them and choosing to to disregard them there's all these kind of there's all these splits all the time and um and the premonitions bureau you know this was you know it featured you know it's 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 got a bunch of people in it who who decided to you know listen to the listen to the 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 tug and 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 to change and to see where to see where it went yeah because you in, in, in a way, it's, there are two extreme worldviews, aren't there? And you, you, you talk about this, I think it's page 86. A world without accidents is also a world of hidden strings and predestined lives. And it yeah. is these two extreme views. If, you, if, if there are no patterns and everything is, is with, without, without meaning and it, it, it's all coincidence and, and random, that's an extreme view of the world. And the other one is... There are none. It's, there, there, there are hidden strings and cabals, and but neither one really fits happily. So it's onto the the way that we think of reality. So we're all sort of somewhere in the middle, aren't we? Yeah. No. I. No. I. I yeah. I, I, I. Yeah. I completely agree. I think that's a really good description. Hey there. I'm Dr. Maya Shankar, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, Jan says, what would it take for you, brackets both, mm. to accept or believe in premonitions? You first. Oh, great. That's a really good question. <laughs> Your book. <laughs> what would it take? Yeah. You know, I think the, you know, the, che- the cheating answer is that it would have to happen to me, it'd have to happen. It'd have to happen to yourself. You'd have to have the kind of the the experience um, in your own mind. I mean, I think it's one of those fascinating questions that, in the broadest frame, you can. You've. I find my own kind of rational defences against it. You know, breaking down. You know, J. B. Priestley, who's kind of great popularizer of of, of, of of problems around time uh with his with his plays which all kind of you know have have complicated kind of versions of time in them he wrote this book man and time in in 1964 um ex- steeped in more or less exactly the same kind of intellectual climate as as barker and the other kind of people in the book and he and he writes about a rope 
fraying at both ends. He says, you know, we know that time doesn't work at the planetary scale because of relativity, and we know that time doesn't work at the subatomic scale because of quantum physics, and why on earth should human life be the only life in which time functions in this remorselessly boring way? <laughs> he talks about, you know, we're living with the poorest notion of time that we've ever had, you know, much older civilizations had much more complicated and, and nuanced understandings of time because it was clearly a mystery. Do you see what I mean? Mm. This kind of, this ultra-rationalist kind of reading, and I, you know, it was, it was, you know, writing and reporting on a subject like this and, and talking to people, I'd always get really worried talking to, you know, people like physicists or people like neurologists or neuroscientists. And, they were really into it as a general rule. There wasn't, you know, I, I, I think there was certainly a time in the kind of a couple of decades earlier, I think the kind of the, the, the big counterattack against, um, you know, ESP and the, and the occult really kind of got going in the 1970s where this stuff was driven out of university campuses and strange little institutes, you know, mm -hmm. couldn't get funding. And you know, there was a kind of, there was a real active attempt to, to shut this stuff down because it was bad for people's minds. I think that, I think that attitude has kind of loosened a little now. If you kind of, you know, if you read, you know, Carlo Rovelli, the Italian physicist and stuff like that, there's really, you know, wonderful and baffling stuff in there. Yeah. Yeah. But on you're dodging, you're dodging, you're dodging. The oh, question. sorry. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure anyone really cares with the right. I'm just going to gloss over that. I mean, it's your book, not mine. But there's another, you, you mentioned in passing this, these gruesome experiments, this uh, swimming jar for yeah. rats, um, yeah. where they, they just make a rat swim round and round and um, see how long it takes before the rat gives up and drowns. It's yeah. the kind of experiment they used to do back in the 60s and 70s, along with things like Harlow's monkeys, nightmare experiments. But then if you lift the show the rat that that they might be taken out and you then they they don't give up so early and you 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 have a little phrase you say if you eliminate hopelessness and there's something very that's a very rich phrase isn't it that because lots of people's lives are filled with hopelessness and they can be overcome with hopelessness and rationally you can feel very hopeless yeah like if you you know, if your factory, the only factory in your town has been closed down or some politician decided to close all the mines and there's nothing you can do. Rationally, you could feel hopeless. Yeah. And yet you need to have some irrational sense, a premonition or an intuition, something deeply irrational that prevents you from just going, oh, I thought it then, I'll just lay down and die. Yeah. So the irrational is, is useful. Oh yeah, well I think it's you know it's you know it's necessary and and it's sort of and as a but about the future like something will come up yeah your yeah, yeah, yeah. says don't worry son something will come up yeah <laughs> and that's that's fate often isn't it you know that's how people kind of talk about it and that's what you know I do I do mean it when I think that there is something innately social in in a premonition I know it's not a kind of it's not the first thing that you might think of but it, it it does hint at something collective and something and something human and something and something shared and so you know and i think the kind of an irrational but a good response to hopelessness is is not feeling 
abandoned and not feeling alone to these forces that are out of our control. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Yes. And it, it brings us back to things like intuition, because we were saying, you know, that someone who makes a prediction, but you feel it's based on a lot of knowledge, like the, the engineer who predicted <laughs> that the train is not safe, is different to the dance teacher who predicts a, a fire in a, 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 a hospital. But intuitions sort of lie in between because an intuition of, often does go way beyond what you think the person could reasonably have come up with yeah. based on their knowledge. And that somehow they make this leap, they intuit something. So is intuition sort of a, in that family, but somehow it, it hasn't been driven out yet? Or, or, I, or do you think that there are lots of people who are suspicious of intuitions? I am... Um... Do they work? Do you think? Do you have intuitions? Yeah, I kind of. I. I. How would I answer that in my own? Uh, in my own experience, I'd probably just dodge this one with a tiny <laughs> bit of a tiny bit of you know Socrates and his and his daimon, you know his his voice in his head, mm. and. His was a voice in his head, his clairvoyant spirit only spoke to say, no, don't do that. Mm -hmm. uh, it didn't say yes. It didn't, it didn't point to things that he couldn't know. It would just warn him of bad things. And I think I, I, think I sort of, I think that's a form of intuition that I, can, that I can relate to. I mean, certainly kind of, you know, in my, in my you know, day job as a, you know, as a, you know, as a reporter, all of these things are true, but it's like, it's always worth that last phone call when, you know, they haven't been picking up. It's always worth knocking on that other door. It's always worth that extra bit. Do you know what I mean? And you're, you're constantly sort of looking for sort of slivers of things that then, that then kind of are borne out. I don't know, you know, that's just a version of intuition from my working life, but I'm sure people have, you know, their own versions of those. Hmm. And intuitions are, would you say <laughs> intuitions are Better than 50-50. Mm. Uh, <laughs> we should open it. The Intuitions Bureau. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, that would be very good. Um, have it been done in other countries, I mean, apart from America? I mean, you know, you can... Would the Germans have a Premonitions Bureau? I think you mentioned something like it in the book. Uh, so there have been, you know, different versions of these experiments have sort of you know come about uh you know the french army was very interested in premonitions during the first world war because it seemed like so many soldiers at the front line were having presentiments or kind of you know again you know classic you know a classic case where it's certainly not irrational to have, you know, vivid visions of sort of terrible things happening, but also, you know, a clash of kind of modernity and modern progress and, you know, stress. So the French army did a study during the First World War. I don't know if it's the one that you're uh, referring to, but Charlotte Barat, a German Jewish woman in the 1930s, started collecting people's dreams and didn't tell them she was doing it. So the conversation would either kind of end up about dreams or she would kind of gently kind of nudge people in that direction and then go home and write about them and make this collection of 
300 or so dreams all recorded in the first couple of years after the, the Nazis came to power in 1933. And some of those are kind of incredibly uh, prophetic and, and, and ghastly and strange. And, and that was a, similarly to Barker, she used a kind of this language of seismology, you know, could you, were, were, were dreams or, or visions some kind of sensor of, 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 of a subconscious or the future before it, before it happened. Yeah. I mean, all of those seem, they seem like they're more tractable for a semi-rational explanation than premonitions. Yeah. There's something, I mean, you chose premonitions wisely because it is the most difficult one because it, <laughs> it, you know, it, it, it fingers some very definite thing. Yeah. A plane, which is going to fall out of yeah. the sky or, and I suppose you could still say, well, I mean, planes do fall out of the sky, but they're much more specific than that. Uh, yeah, and there are, you know, and there are a few, you know, examples in in the book which just sort of are what they are, you know, on a kind of, you know, on a Wednesday morning in October 1967, you know, Miss Middleton suddenly overcome with a kind of of, of depression, sits down in her kitchen and, and writes to the Premonitions Bureau that she thinks there's going to be a train crash and she can see the words Charing Cross. And then Sunday evening, four days later, an express train, you know, comes off the rails eight miles outside Charing Cross and 49 people are killed. It's, it's, it's hard to, to sort of, you can explain it with the law of large numbers and say that, you know, in a population of 20 million people, someone will have a vision of something that then comes to pass and that, you know, someone wins the lottery every week, it happens. But, you know, the, so, some, some of the kind of experiences that, that, that happened are, are right at the edge of, of explanation, shall we say. Yes. And as you say, even if you don't want to sign up to the reality of premonitions in their strongest form, yeah. you, you know, you, you, the, the stuff on the the Scottish islands was just, was just wonderful as, you know, th this is long before people started a sort of semi-scientific resurrection of all of this stuff. Yeah. And it is, as you say, just very deeply social. And the, the fascinating thing is when, as you say, when they went away from the island, it stopped. Yeah. And when they came back, it started again. So, yeah. So it's definitely tied to a community. It's not a, it's not an individual thing. Yeah, that's how you know that's the that's that's the thing that I that I really take from it. And in that, you know, in that sense, you know, how strongly does it differ from religious experience and shared spiritual experiences that you know that that people have? Yeah. Do you think it's going to that that we would do well to re-embrace some tolerance for this sort of thing. Not necessarily just premonitions, but, yeah. you know, voices and premonitions and intuitions and that sort of whole family of not of experiences which don't fall within the sort of AI number crunching yeah. worldview. I think that you sort of... You know, I tried to write this book quite in quite a sort of restricted way in terms of the, the time period where it happened and what the people in the story 
wrote down and said about their experiences. You know, I really didn't want to extrapolate from from the facts. And but one of the things that I think's important is to sort of think about well, what was driving this this thinking? What were these what were these guys reaching for? And you know, in Barker's case, this was certainly about expanding a notion of of what psychiatry is, you know, in, 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 in his case, you know, he was in a mental hospital where some people had been, you know, locked up for 40 or 45 years, locked up as teenagers. Some people just with severe learning difficulties were just being locked away in places. And he was in his day job, taking locks off doors and dismantling railings and bringing jazz bands into the hospital just for a bit of kind of variety and humane treatment. But on the other hand, he thought that these questions of intuition and premonitions and the nocebo effect were kind of, you couldn't separate that from what it is to be a psychiatrist and to understand Mm. what the human mind is capable of on a good day and what it's capable of on a bad day. So it it expressed itself in this eye-catchy and kind of wacky and kind of ultimately somewhat kind of doomed uh, experiment but the the place where it where it was where it was coming from was was basically kind of tolerant and good in a way and you know one of the people that I came across in my research was an American psychiatrist called George Engel who was occupied by almost a kind of eerily identical set of questions he was fascinated by by people who who, who dropped dead seemingly out of fear uh, he was he was being closely following uh, the Ebervan disaster and the kind of the consequences of that. He was really kind of almost the, the American version of Barker. Um, and yet he never set up a premonitions bureau, but in the 80s, he became something of a kind of pioneer for a, a, a what we, he called a kind of biopsychosocial model, model of medicine, which was taking a much broader view of people's environmental factors, their education, much more not seeing past the malady, as it were, than seeing right into people's kind of environmental and social context. So he, you, can, you, can, you can start off heading towards uh, some very kind of eccentric notions and you can just sort of take a, t- take a tiny angle at the right time and, and end up being a sort of person that has lecture halls named after you and kind of, <laughs> kind of, something, of a sort of something of a kind of hero of modern psychiatry or you can, or you can, you can you can be forgotten like John Barker, yeah. Well, John Barker's not forgotten now because he comes alive in your book. Um, I wish we could carry on discussing it, but we can't, I'm afraid. And we we we've, we've run out of time. Um, but listen, thank you so much for for talking to us. And um, yeah, and if you want to read about these wonderful people, they're in there, and they're all not forgotten now, thanks to Sam. Sam, thanks very much for chatting to us. I appreciate it. This episode of the How To Academy podcast starred Sam Knight and was presented by David Malone. It was produced by Luke Nailapero and the series is exec produced by me and Dana Outcult. Come and see Sam live with Michael Lewis on the 7th of June. The discount code again is HOWTOPOD. I hope to see you there, but if you can't make it in person, it's available as a live stream too. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.